And here we are. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to RPG R&D Episode 6 Redux. Uh, <laughs> last, last week we had an audio problem and Pam has been so gracious enough to come and rejoin us again so we can kind of have a do-over of that episode. We had a wonderful conversation last week or two weeks ago, um, but that is now only a secret between us and only we get to benefit from that. just for the three of us. Yes, very secret. Uh, Our special bond. Yes, (laughs) but I'm I'm so happy to be here again. I'm Jess Geyer uh, and with me is my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello. And our special guest co-host, Pam Ponzalan. Hello. <laughs> and Craig, do you want to talk a little bit about what RPG R&D is and, and what our approach is? Sure. Um, what we're doing, uh, we have a, uh, like every, every episode is kind of a three-prong thing. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, GMing, some topic concerning GMing, um, and then a topic about concerning RPG design. Uh, and then another third topic that's kind of like whatever we decide we want to talk about that week, uh, and the the RPG design stuff and well both both the uh, 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 GMing and the RPG design segments are kind of like in order. We're doing kind of like getting started as a GM, and then with the RPG design thing, we're kind of going in order of talking about um, different aspects of designing a game kind of from initial concept down to like creating a product and we're kind of part way through both of those processes so um before we dive into the gm uh segment uh pam could you tell everybody a little bit about who you are oh so i'm i'm pam ponzalan i actually am known mostly as pamu so people kind of forget like that that I actually have a name, uh, but <laughs> that's my fault because of my branding, I guess. I'm the Dovetailer on Twitter. I have done, I've been doing design, I guess, professionally in our spaces for about two years now. So I do game design, some narrative work, sensitivity reading, and cultural consultancy, and I also do some editing. The first work that was not my own that I got a, that I got included in was for Michael Addison I think Nerdy Pup Games for The Curse of the House of Rookwood and I've been publishing a lot of my own stuff I think people know me right now for Sundo which is a PTBA game about being psychopomps who were once human but not realizing that they were human and now recovering their memories as they reap souls of the dead uh, the other game that people are waiting for is Navithem's End. It was very was part of the Our Shores Kickstarter. It was rather successful. We were alongside two other projects in a zine. Then on the commission's end, I was part of the consultancy team for the D&D Ancestry and Cultural Culture Zine under Arcanist Press. I have a couple of other projects on my plate. Uh, Thirsty Sword Lesbians up and coming and a few other things that I sadly cannot talk about. Uh, thankfully, I can talk about the fact, though, that I will be dipping my hands a bit into video game design, mostly for world building, lore, and uh, not really mechanics, but I guess maybe consultancy. It really depends on what happens for Werewolf the Apocalypse under Paradox Interactive. Ooh. That's <laughs> awesome. That is yeah. so cool. It was really funny because uh, the the lead director surprised me. Because, of course, you, you signed the NDA and you're like, okay, I'm not going to talk about it for the next, I don't know, 
few months to maybe two years, who knows, right? Then I just tweeted randomly that like, hey, I need patrons because uh, I'm poor. Ha, love you. <laughs> and then um, the lead director posted, he's like, yeah, Pam's doing amazing stuff for World of Darkness. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I guess I can talk about it now. I guess so. That's the, thing. The, the, N, the, the NDA goblins are not going to come and take away your paycheck. And I, I'm good. So good. Yeah, that's so awesome. That that's such a cool thing that you're doing. I'm I'm excited to hear more about that. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been an interesting challenge, but uh, we can talk about that if it comes up later. For sure. Yeah. Our our first topic of today uh, is how to portray NPCs and, and getting your players to role play with you at the table. Um, and I'm interested in hearing what the two of you have to say in terms of strategy for, for doing that, both as the GM and as someone who's facilitating for other players. Well, for, for me, I mean, it hasn't really happened lately because pandemic means that I don't really get to reach out to new players anymore outside of online conventions and even online conventions in my spaces right now, people more or less know everybody who comes in or at least they can kind of trace like, yeah, that person was invited by me. So you, you have a good idea. I don't get complete strangers anymore, nor do I get people who are completely new to role-playing as in they've never touched dice or they only have like critical role in their brain or like dungeon the dungeons and dragons game like we, i don't really have that situation but before that i used to run for a whole bunch of kids at the university that i used to teach at so the biggest size of my table was about 21 people so there were regular 18 people so it was basically like handling a classroom of <laughs> overeager young Filipino uh, men and women who were very much in the mindset of this is a game we get to do whatever fuck we, whatever the fuck we want basically um, and that's a lot I mean it's already enough wrangling like five people what more 18 who some of them are friends but other people are like hey I've seen you in the smoking area because that was that's the funny story about how the group formed uh, in my university, they had spe very specific smoking areas that were far flung from the rest of the campus. So the people who went there would tend to camp there the whole day unless they had classes. And eventually, my brother, who happened to be studying while I was teaching there, was telling his, his smoking buddies, hey, my sister's a great GM, let's play. And that's how I got them into it. So like, long and short of it is you have a lot of overeager, okay, not overeager, that's not, that's not a nice thing to say. You have a lot of eager potential players, but they immediately get shy when they realize that there are a lot of other people. And then they also get worried that they can't act. So what I used to do is a lot of prompts of like, all right, let's like, let's take a step back from the situation here. Uh, what would you as a person do? And now think about if, you're, if you want your character to be a certain way, give me like a few adjectives and then let's plan it out. So it's like a gentle process of kind of leading somebody to the dance floor and going like, okay, let's take this step and then that step. And then if you're good, let's get that rhythm down. And then I learned a really good technique from another teacher friend of mine that I've carried until now, even with veteran players, where 
every time we start a session, everybody kind of reintroduces themselves and they go like, hey, my name is so-and-so, I'm blah, blah. So if, like, if it's Blades, I'm like, I'm the spider of the gang. Or if it's Dungeons and Dragons, I'm a cleric that worships so-and-so god. And then you give a basic description of how they look at the moment, then another of how they feel. And then another of what are your goals today? And what's your long-term goal? And how do you feel about last session? And what do you want to do about it? So that really gets people into the mindset of what they want as a person and what they want as a player. And it's nice too, because it becomes a mini conversation piece, which kind of serves as an icebreaker because you get naturally you get everybody else at the table going like, oh, I wasn't aware that your character felt that way, or they end up commiserating, or they bring more ideas. So you as a GM just kind of get to sit back and go like, all right, uh, I had no idea what I'm going to do today, but now I do because my players have a plan. So that's, that's some of the techniques that I carried in. Yeah, I was thinking about that um, when you mentioned that uh, a couple weeks ago too. I was like, that is such a good idea to have the players kind of reintroduce their their characters, and not only does that prime themselves for remembering what their character is all about, but it also primes the other players to like it's activating that knowledge for them to get into their own roles and figure out how they are interacting. Because I think that's at the heart of of a role playing game is how your NPCs and how how your how your PCs are interacting with each other and with the world. Yeah, and it can be useful if uh, you're getting each player sort of involved, um, and then every time you do, one player kind of offers that up and starts to get involved and starts to think in terms of their character and speak as their character a little bit, it frees up the other players who feel a little more at ease because, okay, this other person's doing it now. I can do that too. Like, we're all in this together. Um, the, if, they, if, a, if a player sees... Um, other players doing uh, the role play thing, kind of getting into character, speaking as the as their character, and nobody's you know laughing at them unless it's a joke that they made. Um, you know, like everybody is engaged by it and interested in it. it it's less daunting, I think, to uh, to newer players um, or, yeah, people, or, or to people who haven't role played a lot. Yeah, speaking of the joking around, uh, that's another thing that I tend to, I used to get a lot from certain crowds of players where there was a lot of snickering and et cetera. But I think a lot of people forget, even especially people who role play a lot, that many people bring a lot of nerves into the table. Like we're all just bundles of feelings and nerves when we come in. That's why we like role playing because it's a way to immerse, right? So, um, I got a bit of a bad reputation, I guess, among some people here because of the Filipino culture of tabletop is very, let's put your fun first, but like the majority gets to decide the fun. So if you're the kind of outlier, you should just shut up in a corner, smile and, and bear it, right? But I have never been like that <laughs> in my <laughs> life. So uh, I am one girl in a family of five very opinionated boys with two very opinionated parents. So uh, the only way to get heard is to be like, like, bitch, what up, right? So <laughs> um, when I used to get that, I'd have like a 
again, very teacherly, a three strike warning. If I notice somebody looking a little snide or even like saying little side comments or even bringing it up outside of the table, first there's the gentle warning of like, hey, you know, that's not cool. Let's not bring that to the table, okay? Very, very like, Hmm. Uh, you are now a child and I am now the adult but like the second time would be like we talked about this before full stop and the third time would be like if you want to keep playing at my table I don't tolerate that behavior because it, it breaks immersion when you make players feel embarrassed and while you as GM admittedly might not like the, the approach or might feel like a player could have done it better for some people because uh, those are some natural human reactions for depending on the situation in the game it the last thing you want to do is drive somebody off your table because they didn't feel comfortable right and that mm -hmm. tends to be for some people the prelude to feeling unsafe because it's a feeling of being disturbed and uncomfortable more often than not it just stays that way but it again it depends on who's involved what's happening who's there and the i guess the implicit power dynamics at play so yeah it's, there's so much there that overlaps with teaching and like as a teacher you want to make sure that all of your students are are feeling comfortable enough to interact and it all it takes sometimes is just one person to say even a comment that they don't realize is snide yeah um, to completely yeah. make that person shut down and that happens at tables all the time too with with new role players i see that at conventions sometimes um because you know you get a mix of people and personalities you'll get some people who take it really really seriously and if you if you don't if that player doesn't do the thing that they would have done they'll say it and there's not a filter and then you can just kind of see the other person shrink so it is your job as a gm to to give the positive energy through and weed out that negative energy and sometimes it does take that firm stance you have to develop your your adult voice as a gm yeah i i think that it's a tension it's an honest tension point for me because i have heard of many people who walked into a convention hoping to get into tabletop and all it took was that one comment or that one situation to make them completely stop. I have friends who up till now refuse to GM because somebody told them as a player or the first time that they GM that they did it wrong. You carry those moments like it and if you're not in the hobby, perhaps it seems inconceivable that you could be affected that way. But when I was explaining it to other friends of mine who were totally not in the hobby and they didn't get why some of their friends were so upset about the situation, all I said was, well, you cried about that one character in Game of Thrones, right? And it's just a TV show. And I, I did this exact face and they were like, oh, and I'm like, yeah so if you can get invested in a tv show or a video game people can certainly get invested in role-playing games definitely yeah it's it's important as a gm i think to be on your players side um and on on all of their sides and that means um helping and that also can mean like uh, pam said like sometimes you have to bring the hammer down and tell them okay this is this is no good we can't have this because you are you are hurting the game you are ruining it for other people and if uh if if one person is going to leave the table because of the situation that's happening um i think a lot of players and gms out there would agree that it's better that it's the the person that's causing the problem and not the person that's getting kind of targeted um in the process because 
um, you're not getting rid of the problem. <laughs> you're just making it okay for the person to, who's who's doing what they're doing to continue because they've you know they haven't been punished. They haven't had any repercussions for it. Um, and you're encouraging people who, if they don't like it, they'll just leave. Craig, do you have a like a go-to strategy for you know crafting the energy at the tables that you run? Crafting the energy? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, in terms of in terms of playing, you know, role playing characters on my part, are we shifting into like the GM playing characters too? If if I mean, that's part of it, I think for sure. Um, I mean, I I think that everything the the two of you said, you know, fits a lot of like kind of where I've been at with with GMing and and getting players involved. Um, with uh, you know, as a GM and role playing and portraying characters, I think one of the, one of the best things you can do to help encourage role playing on the part of the players is to do it yourself to to some extent to the extent that you feel comfortable um in a way that helps to draw the players out and have them see see that like oh you know okay the gm is kind of quote unquote making a fool of themselves you know the, the gm is is taking a chance and doing this thing and so i you know that that implicitly kind of gives permission to other people to take that chance as well um you know for, for me i know that and as a gm it's a different beast because you're portraying a lot of different characters um most likely and, um, you know, I think that, you know, a, a go-to for a lot of GMs is our, our accents and, and manners of speaking. Um, accents are great if you can do them. Um, if your accent sounds like it's something from, uh, if it sounds offensive and it sounds like it's something from a cartoon from the 50s, um, no, maybe, maybe no. And just, uh, you know, say that, you know, when well, my character is speaking in this accent and then just talk in your normal voice. If you don't feel comfortable that you're creating, you know, like doing a realistic accent. But beyond accents, there's a lot you can do with, with, with how you're speaking and, and giving life to the characters. There's, um, there's characters that whisper all the time. There's characters that speak very forcefully. There's characters that bounce back and forth between the two. Characters who repeat themselves, who use certain phrases over and over. Um, who, um, one of my favorite, uh, uh, characters in it, the, 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 it, <laughs> a great, a great method just to, for, to portray a character who you're, the players are going to immediately dislike. Um, if it's, you know, cause you're, you're, you've got an NPC, a villain or, or like some sort of adversarial uh, person is to play the character who, um, make statements by asking rhetorical questions and then answering them themselves. The play, the, 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 and I know that sounds weird, but here you've, you've all heard, no, I get it. You've all met this person. It's the person who says, am I impressed with your skill? Yes, I am. Am I going to hire you for this job? No, I'm not. And so that, ha that, that character has a very distinct, clear voice and everybody hates them immediately. Um, so you can use those affectations in voice um, to, to, Put the character, you know, to put the players in a position to like a character immediately. If the character, if the NPC asks about their their well being all the time, asks about the character's family members, well, you're going to immediately like that person a little more, or maybe suspect them if it's the right type of game. Like you, <laughs> they might yeah. have an ulterior motive. But you know, like what you do with the character, and it can literally be just one thing, just like one yeah. thing that gets repeated and it sticks with the players and it helps to color the character. Um, and makes that NPC memorable and helps you to distinguish between different voices. 
Yeah, there's so much to be said about those social skills and those antisocial skills that you have as a person that you can bring to the table. Like, you know how, like, if if you, all the tips that you get for doing well in an interview mirror the person's posture, um, like, look engaged at the, at the PCs if you want to be a positive NPC, be completely disengaged, um, talk over people if if that is um something that would be considered rude and um and or like even sometimes you could turn away from your from your uh players while they're talking if you are trying to portray a bad person like there there are all sorts of things you can you can do um that would work in real life that work at the table too and do it in an exaggerated sense so nobody misses it. And it's clear that you're doing that on purpose. You're not Stage. looking away from the player that's talking because you you are disinterested. You're looking away because the character that you're portraying is disinterested. Um, so just to, to be careful to, yes. <laughs> to not let the, uh, the real life um, perception of, of you as a person bleed in. It's funny too because I think that uh, some of the GMs that got into jamming because they were playing under me they didn't re they didn't realize that you as gm might not know your own body language if you're really really immersed in your character uh at the moment uh like i they called me out a couple of times where they'd know immediately which npc was coming in because of the way that my posture would change and i wasn't even aware of that i was like oh really well good job self you know <laughs> but uh it, it's it's fun because um some inflections you could get pretty pretty you could get pretty interesting with the inflections that you chose i gave a visceral reaction to one player of mine for my world of darkness campaign before where the vampire NPC that his vampire NPC would usually deal with uh, is a slightly loopy, very eccentric uh, Filipino-American vampire. And she'd always start very Southern, polite with her letters of, my dearest Dr. Kane. And that's how I'd read it out, except she's completely nuts. So whenever he'd hear that on the phone or he'd see it in a letter because she'd write these nice, beautiful letters with flowery script that smells like roses. Uh, he'd just freak out. So, <laughs> and I'd be like, my dearest Dr. Kane. And my, my player would be like, okay, I'm ready. I swear, <laughs> what's coming? Right? So that was, that was great. Um, for Blades, I took a cue from a friend of mine for Bazo Baz, because Bazo Baz is supposed to be frightening and comes back a lot in the Blades in the Dark book. And what my friend did was Bazo Baz perhaps is, was his attempt at making a neurodivergent person that matched his own neurodivergence uh, in, in real life. So what that, what that GM did was Bazo would simply emulate emotions because he felt nothing. He was basically a human robot. So his mannerism was when a player would speak, the GM would deliberately just stare for like a good few seconds. And then the, the facial expression would come up and it would be completely exaggerated. And then he'd speak in a very, a voice that basically went up and down. So really interesting stuff. And That's I knew not- that I was doing it. 
yeah sorry. that's not unsettling at all <laughs> yeah i know uh how how i did it was I, I tried to emulate that and i knew i was successful because it was a scene between me and another character who wanted a favor from basso Baz. and it was obvious that the player and the player thought that their character would be able to get it because uh they she had she had a lot of really good justifications for it and i was like okay let's let's see what happens because the worst thing you could do as a gm in any game is an automatic no unless it's absolutely terrible don't waste your players time uh just talk it out ooc and figure it out so uh unfortunately the negotiations fell through and so what i did with Basso is that he was listening and again his face was just completely dead and the fisheye blinking was happening on my end. And uh, when the player was done uh, with their character stammering into the nothing, realizing that the negotiation was not working out, uh, I just had, okay, Bazo takes this bottle of whiskey. And I did have a bottle of whiskey because I did used to do day drinking with some players for Blades. It, it got everybody into the mood. <laughs> and I just, like, I just poured it. And I was like, you see this whiskey? It is infinitely more valuable than any word that you've ever come out of your mouth right now. And I just put it down. Ow. And like, <laughs> the silence was just <laughs> at the table. And when I was done with the little whispery voice, and I was like, okay, so you guys exit Basil Baz's uh, HQ. I guess it's not a workout. Lamp lags aren't going to help you. And there's just this long pause. And all my players were like, Pam, that was absolutely frightening. It's in the middle of the day. I need a smoke. I'm so stressed. <laughs> I'm like, I'll go with you. Congratulations, self. <laughs> Those are always so like moments that are so fun. Um, one of the GMs that I play with is so good at evoking those really terrifying characters. And sometimes yeah. he gets like, <laughs> like way into it. One time he was pretending to be like some kind of bird monster and he jumped up like with his leg on the table and was squawking at one of the other oh players. My gosh. Like, like got really into it. Um, and, and other times like he'll just have like the most hateful expression on his face. Like he does it, he does it really well and those moments are always so fun as players too because those are things you're you're throwing the energy out there you're going to get energy back from your players yeah. in the same way i bet you had a really good session with uh with your players trying to um recover from that mess that happened yeah they avoided bazo for weeks after that <laughs> and i was like okay job done now we can introduce the hundred other factions that I had to write for because basically you have to build Duskwall from the ground up. So Yeah. Do we want to get into our, our next segment or do we Sure. Yeah, we're talking also I because I think that um like everything that we've we've talked about here with, with portraying NPCs and getting your players to um to role play too we're, we're gonna end up repeating some of that stuff because really it is just about like what are you doing as a gm2 to have fun yeah. um and our game design topic uh is about text clarity and presentation and representation so what your text is telling the readers and the players um so this is it's kind of a complicated topic because it's it's one of the most meta parts of writing anything is mm -hmm. what happens when you're done and it goes off to people. Now it's no longer in your hands. Um, so how do you like kiss, kiss your babies goodbye and, and send them <laughs> off in the world? And are they, are they the babies that you want to send off into the world? Are they, are they presenting things the way you, that they want to? They, it, 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 art is a reflection of the artist 
Um, and you know, there's the, the, the comment that some people make that all art is political. And the term political is, you know, can be interpreted a lot of different ways. But what, what that really comes down to is it means that like, what the thing you create is a product of you, of your background, of your, um, uh, of who you are, of the, 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 the trouble that you've dealt with, the problems you've dealt with, the privilege that you've experienced, um, and how you've, you know, handled all of that. Um, and then like the intention of what you're putting into the game itself and what it, what you think it's about and what you're trying to make it about, but some things bleed through. And so some things kind of become, um, uh, like if, if, if you put out a game that, you know, is filled with male, white, straight characters, even if you weren't trying to make a game that is about male, white, straight characters, you have done that. And so people are going to look at that and perceive you as having done that on purpose. Um, um, I think that's like ahead. where most of the controversy just like in the scene comes out. It's not necessarily like your intention can be one thing, but how readers receive things can be com completely other, I don't want to call out any specific projects, but um, recently there had been a pretty big uh, controversy over a, a certain book. I'm, I know I'm being really vague, and I hate being vague like this, but I don't want to call a project out. Well, and um, you don't have you don't have to worry about it yeah. because it happens every five months. It's true, it does, <laughs> and the intention is one thing, and they put themselves. It was very clear that they were putting themselves into this work, and when people read it, they felt like they were being represented as the readers in a completely different way, in a bad way, in a negative way. And it made people really mad. Um, so really you have to have a, a critical lens and, and not just, not just read your text for editing purposes, but read it for your audience purposes. I, I think that in general, tabletop spaces might benefit from always keeping at the top of mind that a a review is different from feedback which is different from critique we we tend to blend the three into this weird monster of of negativity according to our own tension points but the thing is when somebody reacts to your intent in when it comes to representation that's coming from a very real space of lived experience and that's where it gets i think very touchy so and uh, unfortunately i think it happens a lot because most people when they put out their art i think everybody i kind of speak for more or less everybody uh, we always start the same way you put out art and you expect everyone to just understand it but that's mm -hmm not gonna happen <laughs> you know, tabletop is for better or for worse the medium of tabletop is the written word and the written word is nowhere near as certain as people like to think one word can mean very different things according to cultural context uh, one random trivia just to just to illustrate that the word salvage in the american context is could be to salvage something important or to salvage to, to salvage something from a ruin right for the filipino salvage actually and this is trigger warning for uh for state violence and also for dictatorial governments when you when you say salvage and you hear that on the street that means that they found a body of somebody that was likely executed by the government so th those that's two wildly different meanings grossed in context or rather they're they're in coached in context so and if those things can can 
wild can vary so wildly. I think keeping that also at the top of mind is important when you write. And the personally, I prefer as a designer to be very, very explicit about the themes. Uh, the don't do the perhaps it's like this or the maybe or it appears to be like if you're certain that it, the thing is a thing then write it down because you, when you put your brain on paper you're the only one who will 100% understand it most of the time the other person with another set of eyes who's coming from another perspective won't so the most clear that you could be write down to sidebars the better. You could always just edit to remove what you feel might be bloat. Or you could you could put comments if you have an editor, like please hire editors. By the way, editors are great. I think that tabletop in general does not have enough editors going around for their text. And this is not to say for me that um you're you're a bad designer if you can't hire one, because I do understand that all of us have our own constraints, but uh, if you have somebody who's willing to volunteer or do, uh, I think, was it Craig who mentioned it? I, I, he, it might have been. Labor, um, labor trade. Labor trade. There you go. Where you could just, you could trade, you could share each other's skills around. Or if you have a very supportive Discord community or even a Facebook group, whichever works for you. And you can post your text. At least getting another set of eyes would be great. And get another set of eyes that for the lack of a better term, is not like you. So if you're a dude, get a woman to read it as much as possible. If you're straight and you have some queer people in it, get somebody queer. And I honestly think, and maybe people will shoot me for this, but like, we all need to grow up also when it comes to feedback and critique. If somebody points something out in their text, in your text, and it's not in an assholey fashion. If it's in an upset fashion, deal with it. Those are their feelings. But overall, we need to grow up and take feedback better when it comes to reading, uh, or rather reactions to how we've written a thing. Uh, practical advice for me is very hard to give. I think we, we could end up spending three to five streams just <laughs> going through texts and figuring out how to do the thing. Um, and it's very, it, it, it really depends on your context, but uh, feedback is extremely important and getting used to it is also important. And the, the, I guess the reality that someone is always going to read your text differently and not in the way that you hoped or wanted will help. And there's a quick, quick note, labor trade, just to clarify what that means for some people who might it's, it's actually i mean i've never heard that before i kind of coined it i don't know um but <laughs> it, the idea people there's, and there's plenty of people that do it like for example jess has a manuscript that she's written i have a manuscript that i've written neither one of us can afford an editor so we both look at each other's manuscripts and and mark it up and provide feedback um that's you know just trading um your skill set with another person who has a, a skill set that can that can help you um but the uh i think the the the, the one of the biggest things just to keep in mind is that it happens. It, it, like, it's going to be there. There's going to be, you are going to color how um, everything's written. And 
you're not necessarily, even if you're super cognizant, even if you're, you know, super aware of everything and you, you get every, uh, consultant and editor in person of different, uh, who's different from you get people of different races and sexualities and, and gender representations and so forth. Uh, this, there's still maybe stuff that slips through. You're not going to be perfect necessarily, but make the effort it is, is important. And then, oh boy, this is something that occurred to me as we were all talking here too. <laughs> Role-playing games are doubly susceptible to this because not only am I writing that and then it's being read by somebody and interpreted a certain way, but then they're also mm. going to role-play that in a performance. Yes. And that performance is going to be perceived by other people at the table, people who are yes. watching the actual play, that they're going to make, like it's going to go through another filter that might make what you presented in words even worse mm. um, if somebody took it as permission to to go into a, a bad place because you didn't forbid it for the purposes of your game um, yeah and so yeah that just be be cognizant be aware um and put forth the effort to and i think to, also to accept that. the fact yeah accept the fact that you have that responsibility it's not just about i felt like shitting out a game therefore it's done that it's not done it stopped fully being yours the moment you released it. A work of art will only ever be 100% yours if you wrote it out and then you showed nobody. That's the <laughs> only time it will only be yours. But the moment you put it out there, uh, and this is teacher voice, Pam, take responsibility <laughs> because that's the thing. If you're, I mean, that's also why even when we hang out on online spaces like Twitter and on Discord and Facebook, people react poorly. Uh, because, uh, frankly, the moment you you stop keeping the words to yourself, it stops totally being your own. And a book will function the same way. And because there is the, the, the experience of immersion and of getting into a character's skin or getting at least into a situation skin, mm -hmm. unless you're deliberately doing a thing where I'm making this character as a satire and or this game is a satire, let's have fun. Uh, it, but even in that, you could be reflecting something. That's why humor is so powerful. It's actually the harder form, in my opinion, than tragedy. It's very easy to make people cry. It's not easy to make people laugh. And what you laugh at versus what you cry at is more indicative of your character than you think. Humor is supposed to be about punching down, not punching up. But most people will punch laterally or they'll <laughs> punch down at other people because that's how, uh, that's how some cultures or some contexts have, have done things. They, they minimize through ridicule and we carry that into whatever we do. We don't even know it. So... Uh, there's a wider conversation to be had here, I guess, about accountability and humility. But if we focus really on the text, taking a bit more responsibility would be great for, for what you do. Thinking every step. What am I putting in here? Why am I writing this thing? Why does this design matter to me? What does this really mean? And then asking your peers, like, what do you think of it? And prepare yourself for possibly harsh feedback and a mirror being turned back to you. And you have every right to decide when to take the feedback because, and in my opinion, that helps deciding or setting your boundaries on which days you really go into a text or go into feedback from somebody. But at the end of the day, don't avoid it because it'll help you grow as a designer. It's, it's, you're, you're exactly right about like the, the moment that you, you produce it, it's not yours anymore. 
And mm. TTRPGs and any interactive fiction, really any game has kind of this dual relationship where not only do you as the artist feel very attached to the work, because that's just the nature of creating, but then also the players and the readers, you are asking them as a, you, as a game writer, you are asking them to interact. You are asking them to form even stronger of a relationship with your work than a write, a, like a, a novel writer or an artist, like a visual artist would, because you are asking them to do something with it. Um, so that's, uh, it's quite a big responsibility to bear because you are requiring them to interpret it. I think of like Shakespeare, how, how it has endured in, in um, English literature for so long with all these different interpretations um, and how everyone gets something else from it. And every, every actor puts their own methodology into their characters and every director does something different with it. Um, it's going to be the same thing with your work and, and you have to understand that that is going to happen because that's what you want out of it. So when you do get feedback, like like Pam said, take it like an adult. <laughs> you can be hurt. You, it can sting. Yes. You can let it hurt. Yes. But that Absolutely, doesn't mean yeah. it's not valid. Yeah. Like it just the wound will happen. Nurse it as you will. And, but it unless. Okay, this is completely blunt. If you can't take feedback, you have no business staying in the space. That's that's it for me. Like if you if you cannot grow from your experiences, perhaps consider another thing to do because any kind of art will have critique and I'd say as somebody who has done the critique gauntlet from writers workshops to teaching to consultancy nine times out of 10, it is valid. It's not just somebody sh yucking your yum, I guess it's, it's real. <laughs> and um, it is, and putting on the sensitivity reader hat also, um, we are basically your therapists when it comes to uh, cultural and sensitivity reading. When you hire us, we are psychoanalyzing the text and the situation. And it is also reflecting your implicit biases, experiences, and lived experiences as well. So that is, an, that is a great amount of emotional labor for both you and for me. And it'd be much, much easier if we all kept in mind that we are both human, we are both trying very hard to make a good thing. That's why you came to me. A sensitivity read is not a rubber stamp of approval. Uh, it is a, this text is definitely problematic. Every text is problematic somehow. Can you please help me make it less problematic? That's, that's as far as we can go. It, you can practice. There are spaces where you can practice taking critique too. If it, it, is, a, it is a skill that you need to build up just like any yes. other skill in writing. Um, if, if you find that you have a lot of, you can't control your emotions, I should say, when you get feedback, because I see that as a writing teacher, sometimes I, I, I have to train my students to take their feedback without crying about it, because that has happened before. And, you know, it, I, it's, it's an understandable emotion sometimes. I get it. But you can find safer spaces where you can get critique from people that you trust and that you know that aren't that aren't just trying to hurt your feelings uh writers groups in you know online or in person when you can do things in person again at your local library these are places where you can go where everyone is kind of joining and getting feedback and critique 
Um, the practice that you received in school is valuable for that. Um, talking, talking to just one person that you trust a lot about it, even if they don't know the TTRPG space or whatever um, medium that you're working with at that moment, building up that muscle, you should do it if, if you, um, if you, if you intend that. to stay. Yeah. yeah. If, if you intend to say, um, this is not me saying, get out if you can't handle it. It's more of, <laughs> it's, it's just the reality of it, really, when you're producing anything. Trust is very, very important. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not, I, I have spoken to some designers who felt like the best way of getting critique is to just throw it at everybody. But for me, that is both a waste of time because you really won't get a lot of productive feedback you'll get a lot of people going like hey what a cool thing and then that's it right or you'll get the worst part which is like this is shit and they're never going to explain to you why it was a problem uh, build up the trust uh, and i i can i seem to be speaking very in a very authoritative fashion about this but like i used to be absolutely terrible at taking feedback i'd either fling into crying fits or Me. i'd get mad and right i'd get mad or defensive <laughs> right it it is a skill and uh, even giving feedback in a productive fashion is also a skill if you're going to tell somebody like if somebody approached you with their game and your first reaction was, this is bad. Uh, before you tell them it's bad, maybe think about why. Because if you can't explain it, then is it their fault for making the bad game? Or is it on you for not being able to explain what's wrong with it? Because that's also a skill. Uh, separating your personal preferences, especially when it comes to systems. I mean, that's why people have get into system wars even in the year of our lord 2021 <laughs> right like ridiculous but it happens and there's also people who uh or rather there's also the okay this is really this could work better or uh this approach is harmful to other people you know those are two different things yeah um and i think it's worth mentioning too that what goes for the words goes for the pictures yeah. Uh, as well um, and that yeah. from the cover down to just like little bits of spot art that are in the the book if you have if you were involved in in the art direction in deciding what the uh, you know what the look of the the, the, the product is going to be um, and, and, and describing what the art should be and how you want that to represent what the game world is and what the game is about and what the game represents and who it's intended for and who's welcome to the game mm -hmm. and as a as a quick aside um like if you don't do this stuff you're gonna have a hard time harder harder time finding people mm -hmm. to play your game because there's gonna be a lot of people that are just gonna be like mm, no that person does some stuff that mm. so like if, if if you're if your goal for this and, and i know it is for a lot of people i know it is for me is for more people to play the game mm -hmm. um uh then you know keep that in mind <coughs> but like Speaking to the illustration thing, um, I've I've told I've talked about this before, where I create literally a matrix of illustrations when I know I'm going to be doing a piece, and it's like how many illustrations are in each chapter, what are they going to be, and I and I start giving a great deal of thought to what sorts of characters um, are being portrayed in those illustrations. Is there a wide variety? Am I hitting on all different types of people? And more importantly, not just having them there, but having everybody the different different types of characters that are being presented as being treated equitably in that 
there's just as many um, black women presented in positions of power and like being the main character in the illustration and doing the cool thing rather than being like in, 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 in the background as there are white men, as there are, um, you know, Latino women, um, as there are NB people, um, as there are, uh, uh, people with a disability, you know, with a visible disability, um, whatever, whatever you're representing, you're providing ways for, um, you know, those, those, those illustrations are going to invite people into the game. Um, even before they read the back cover that tells you what the game is about. Sometimes some players, literally the first thing they do is flip through, look at, you know, they look at the cover and then they flip through the book and look at the illustrations. And if they flip through the book and they see people that look like themselves, um, they're going to be more inclined to be interested in the, in the story uh, that your, your game is presenting. If I yeah. may offer a fantastic example of representation, uh, I can't talk about it in full, of course, but people have seen some of the previews. Thirsty Sword Lesbians has done so far a fantastic job at representation. There is a ver there's a variance of bodies, of, of skin colors, of the fact that the, the characters aren't even human, the way that they're portrayed, the situations at hand. It, if you can afford it and you do intend to have art, uh, Craig has a matrix that is a wonderful idea, and to add to that, uh, make sure that you have a plan, that your art also tells a story. Mm -hmm. uh, my partner is currently doing Navithem, uh, Navithem's End art direction, and they have a spreadsheet <laughs> with all of their little plans and what, the, what they want to get done. And another thing that Sin has decided to do is they are deliberately hiring only artists from the Philippines and or Southeast Asia, or basically not America. And the idea there is, again, you bring your subject position into the work. This is not to say that like we think Americans suck. That's not how it works. It's more of most of the narratives, whether they're visual or they're audio or they're oral or whatever, are currently dominated by North American perspectives. Mm -hmm. By simply bringing somebody else from outside of the, power, the center of power, be it Europe or North America, you are changing your text already. So that, is, that might also be a little tip, hire outside of yourself, not just get a reader outside of yourself. It really helps. Yeah. That, it, that's so important too, because if you do hire writers or, writers or artists that aren't like you, they are going to add those things to the images that they provide you um, mm. without, well, I mean, you should always ask if you are asking for art or if you have an art director on your project, you should make it clear, like, here is my vision for this. I want to have, yeah. I value this diversity. I value this. Um, and they will do that for you. Um, but also with the hiring practices that will get more people to see themselves in your work. And that's not only good, it's not only a good thing to do, but it's also the the monetary value for you because more people, if you're selling your book, more people will come and play your game because they will see themselves in it. I know I appreciate things when I see bisexual characters or queer characters Same. in yeah. in anything. I want to like, I will watch anything with Kristen Stewart, for example. <laughs> because I, I know that <laughs> she is a bisexual person and I like that. I appreciate that. So I will, I want to see that. Um, and, and I like flipping through and seeing people that look like me or, or have the same orientation and gender as I do. And I know a lot of people like to see that 
in themselves too. You'll get more people in. It will make people feel good. You're doing yourself good and you're doing them good. There's no downside. Just make sure not to make it uh, like, of course, this is the speaking audience uh, directed. Uh, just make sure that you don't relegate those who are not like you to diversity hires because that yep. is also the, the pitfall of uh, we a lot of people give advice that way and yes it's true we need more color color literally we need more color whether it's a rainbow or whether it's not white but um if your only goal in hiring somebody that is not like you is to look progressive maybe step out of the space because that is not the right intent. The intent was to uplift and the intent was to learn from your experience. And the intent was to create something that speaks to as many people as possible. Not everybody because that's impossible, but as many people as possible. So if if that's the, the top of mind that I want to do this cool thing and make it look liberal, just no. We have enough yeah. of that here. It, Please don't add that. It's kind of that weird balance too. Like, you don't want people to think that you're doing that either. And you mm. don't want to be that person. You don't want to be the, the white liberal. Let's include some. <laughs> well, include if, them. If, if it helps as the, as the brown girl on the stream, we can tell is the thing. If your intent is pure, it'll shine through no matter what. That's, uh, that's tried and tested from, from a consultant. So it's, as long as your intent is pure, it's it's it sounds very very Lord of the Rings or anime, but <laughs> yes, it always shines through. We can tell. We talk about it. Uh, we don't have secret cabals of colored people. That's not how it works. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have our own spaces though, and uh, right. I can at least speak for RPGC. Uh, that there we do have some spaces in RPGC where we do we are watchful uh, that again this is a separate stream I suppose entirely but it's uh, you learn to to read the wind I guess and and study behavior and observe uh, so when you know that you're doing it right as a creator, whether you're also a person of color or you're white or you're also straight or you're queer, if more people feel comfortable around you enough to just talk about their day or or blab about your game, you know you're doing it right if they come around. Uh, so yeah, don't, don't worry too much about intent. If, if your intent is spirit, it'll happen. Yeah. I agree. Well, we are nearing the end of our hour <laughs> mark and... I think we should dive into some potpourri. How about that? Sure. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> uh, I don't actually have my my potpourri topic written down. I think we talked about putting. Wanting you remind Trans, me what our... transposing one media into another. That's right. Um, That's whether right. that whether that be like drawing inspiration from a movie or a TV show or a comic book or, or, or a manga or something into an RPG or whether it just be like, you know, we can, it can be as broad as like thinking about like, um, you know, television adaptations of books or like when, when, a, when a movie gets made into a TV series or a TV series gets made into a movie. Um, just like 
this isn't this is this is the part where we can all sit back and not be quite so authoritative and we can just like talk about the things that we've experienced that we've seen that we like that we think uh, are good practices if somebody is going to try to do something like that but we don't have to you know it, it's it's pretty broad pretty open to whatever it is you <laughs> whatever's kind of clicking your mouse um <laughs> for for that sort of topic <laughs> whatever's clicking your mouse i love that that's a nice <laughs> neologism <laughs> Gosh, there was someone who was talking um, earlier. I don't remember what the actual context was, but like making a great British Bake Off style RPG. <laughs> and like, I love, I love the idea of of taking that like game show kind of aspect into a game. Um, there's there's so much cool stuff you could do with that. I was thinking about that earlier today. Like, how would I? Do guys grocery games as <laughs> a TTRPG. If you don't know what guys grocery games is, it's on Hulu in a in the United States. But um, Guy Fieri has chefs play games and make food by throwing random ingredients at them, basically. Um, and just like there, there's, I don't know, that tickles my fancy. I want to try that out. I think. Well, next game coming from Wannabe Games, <laughs> some sort of. Uh... <laughs> RPG that is centered around uh, some sort of competition um, scenario where there's an expert or two or three who are going to judge. <laughs> there's there's a lot of interesting things you could do with that. It becomes a question of like, well, who do the players portray? Are they the contestants? But or are some of them contestants and some of them are judges? Does that change from session to session? I mean, there's all sorts of interesting dynamics you could do with that. Yeah, like trying to like distill the media that you're you're transposing into the new media is the 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 crux of everything it oh, sounds yeah. so easy but it's also the the hard part <laughs> it it requires being kind of a dork about the thing that it is that you're starting from <laughs> and really examining yeah. it and taking a lot of notes and like okay now i'm going to watch this entire tv series or this set of you know seven movies in this series um, but I'm not going to sit and enjoy the, sh the, the, the story. I'm going to take notes on the characters, and I'm going to take notes on what sort of themes are recurring in the show or the movie or whatever and try to figure out what those all are, make a list, and see how I can instill those things into, uh, you know, for our purposes, a game. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and how can I do that uh, narratively, and how can I do that mechanically, if, if that's possible? Uh, like like the Stardew Valley games people have been talking about recently too <laughs> on Twitter. Like a couple of people are making Stardew Valley inspired games with the quaint, cozy cottage core kind of aspect of being a little farmer on your <laughs> your <laughs> land and selling things and making friends. Um, like there's just so much fun stuff with that. I'm I'm thinking of all these games now that that take aspects um, like um, uh, Pasión de la Pasiones. I I. I've never studied Spanish, so I'm not really sure exactly how to pronounce that. But I know that that You're takes this, this Spanish <laughs> telenovela style into the TTRPGs. Uh, just there's so much cool stuff with that. Yeah, everything's uh, built around melodrama and kind of overdone, you know, over everything's overwrought. All the emotions are heightened. Um, there's a lot of cliche things that happen that, you know, that. And it's okay, and, and it's and it's yeah. and it's okay because in yeah. telenovelas, like there's the evil twin pops up like every couple of weeks, and there's like a huge betrayal, and somebody gets married like once a month, and you know, because they, because they, they're just they're just crunching story out. Um, so it's completely acceptable that there's um, all this 
uh, kind of overdone, overwrought, like you're using these cliches. Tropes are fun. I love building games um, by spinning tropes of different uh, genres or TV shows or movies. I've done it a few times. I plan to do it more. Um, Pam, what... Uh, is there anything you've uh, delved into on this or that, or anything in particular that uh, has kind of struck your fancy as an interesting mm. transposition between <clears throat> media? Well, right now, I am, oh, the, my entire social media feed knows that I've disappeared into like Eorzea FF14 world. I'm just like <laughs> always there. Uh, you can find me at the server 24-7. Um, but when it comes to transposing, one of the things that I... Um, still figuring out how to do in full is the Devil May Cry game uh, that I wanted to do because I love Devil May Cry and it's it's stylish, it's over the top, it informed my sexuality in ways that I am not shameful about <laughs> telling uh, because you have two white-haired demon boys who are brothers, that's just great shit for a girl like me at 14. Um, so, but the thing with Devil May Cry was it's it's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be over the top. You're supposed to realize that these are terrible body horror villains in a very blasted world that gives you no answers. Like, you don't even know why it's like that. No matter how hard you try, nobody's going to explain it to you. Uh, it's very... There are other games that have done the same kind of storytelling, like Dark Souls has done the same thing. There are funny reasons on why, but we don't need to go into that. Uh, then Bloodborne also does that. Uh, even uh, Supergiant Games have done that with Bastion, uh, Transistor, and even Hades, if I remember correctly. But how emulating that has been fun, because what I have right now, since Devil May Cry had the whole idea of... Uh, humanity versus being a demon uh, I made a bar or I will be making a bar uh, because the characters in my Iscariots game uh, basically eat the body of Christ and become angelic but the thing with the angelic uh, perceptions is that it's not the cute renaissance cherubs we're talking the fear not biblical angel <laughs> level scary <laughs> so uh, you have the bar of, of your, your humanity <clears throat> and also your how far you're becoming into your angelic self and also how the level of i guess how damned you are given that you are still doing terrible things in order to survive and in order to help a community so that i think will become a token system uh very similar to what i did with sundo which is also a bit of the the token pool in Sundo because you're trying to collect memories is if you get a, one fragment of a memory it leads into a keystone and a keystone I guess very Kingdom Hearts unlocks uh, a part of your yeah it unlocks a part of your brain and you realize that uh, it's a fragment of a memory of yourself and how it's portrayed in Sundo is um, it becomes a back and forth between the GM and the player. Like, okay, you're, you said that your character has the following, following things that they don't understand. Let's go into that. Like, let's say that your, your angel actually carries. Very cliche, I guess, but it works. Uh, 
let's say that I have a character who has a wedding ring and they don't really know, they don't realize it's a wedding ring. It's just a really nice, well-wrought ring. When the keystone activates, we go into a scene of how you find yourself staring down uh, at what seems to be your hand and someone else is putting that ring on your finger. Mm. And that's like, that's it. That's the only thing you'll get. So of course your character is like freaking out, going like, what was that? But the player understands what happened. And that leads into more questions, which gives the whole effect that Sundo wanted, at least, of confusion, of picking up pieces of yourself, but not quite understanding how they fit. And when they fit, the emotional resonance of how and why. But, and but going back to the Devil May Cry game, at least, um, if it's a bar, um, the more you, the farther down along you are, the more your appearance will change because that's also kind of how it works with a lot of demon demon games or a lot of games where the darkness or the evil of your act mm-hmm. or the goodness of your act is reflected in physical, in a physical mm-hmm. nature. So in a tabletop, uh, how would you do that? I guess maybe you'd write lists like, do you grow horns? Uh, did, your, did the color of your skin change? Does your voice change? Does it sound like embers now? Or do you have multiple eyes? So those are some ways that I've been delving into transposing. It's less about practical details, I feel, and more about feeling, evoking the kind of, of feeling that the text or the story on hand wanted to give you. So if you focus on that, most of the pieces will fall into place. Yeah, it really, it's, it is about the feelings too. And sometimes the feelings that you get from like the different media too, like I, you could even see that in like really big franchises like Star Wars. Um, yeah. There are so many different books that have different tones and completely different, like almost completely different genres at times, even though they're all under the Star Wars banner. Even the movies that they've come out with have had these completely different interpretations of what Star Wars is, or the games have had completely different yeah. interpretations. And uh, that's one of the fun things about putting your own self into games too yeah what did this mean to you and how do you want to show it to the world yeah, you take yeah. the you take the background that the the, in, the that the ip has and you can spin it into like you said with star wars like if if, if mm. these if these movies didn't exist you could make a game where it's set in the star wars world um in the star wars universe but it's rogue one so it's uh it's a war movie and it's all about it's you know probably characters are going to die. There's going to be really huge stakes, yeah. um, you know. Or you can have a be solo, and it's a pirate flick where it's just like fun, raucous, you know, spacefaring pirate adventure um, with uh, with interesting characters. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of different different directions you can take things. Um, <laughs> I've I've found myself digging into TV shows for inspiration a lot lately, and, and um, like I uh, did a kickstarter um actually done fulfilled it because i had it all finished up uh because i was a sucker and got it all done before (laughs) um for uh uh, low stakes which was based off uh inspired by what we do in the shadows which is all about vampires Mm. living in the modern day and they're really terrible at it um they have all their hang-ups they have things that they're really terrible at doing they don't (laughs) they don't they don't fit into the modern life that you know they've 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 clung to their old ways and all that sorts of stuff and i just tried to break down like what are some of the thematic elements of the show that i can make that i can make into a mechanic and then let everybody Mm -hmm. just fill in the humor and the silliness um that comes out of all of that but have 
um, the things that happen in the show um, that that re- repeatedly happen um, represented somehow mechanically, where every every character playbook has some things that they're really terrible at. Um, the anachronism character playbook is they're bad with anything modern day. Like this is a vampire or a, or a werewolf or a wizard or whatever that's like really old, and they they don't know how to use a computer. They can't drive a car. They can't pay rent on time. Like they're they're just terrible at all those sorts of things. Um, and the uh, the judge is very good at pointing out everybody else's flaws, but never sees any problems in themselves. And so they have these <laughs> they have all these these all these problems that they're dealing with very poorly about that have to do with themselves. And just and, and turning uh, you know make, making uh, having people make checks uh, make, make dice rolls to try to actually do something that they're terrible at and have them mostly fail because the check the target number for the check is very high <laughs> um but there's ways to earn points that give you more dice so you can eventually at like mm-hmm. the end of the episode you can do the thing correctly um uh and then you know other mechanics for dealing with uh like how roommates kind of try to vie for control and influence over each other they want to kind of have the upper hand in the house they want to get their way um and then um, also a mechanic for uh, what we see in a lot of TV shows and, and what we do in the shadows does it with the confessional scene where the, the character turns and talks to this camera that's been following them and explains something <laughs> or reveals something. And um, I incentivized doing those scenes by allowing you to gain bonuses um, or mess with other characters. You gain bonuses for yourself to use later or you could mess with another character right now in the moment. Um by 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 you know cutting to the uh the confessional scene where you reveal something that you know is like i'm going to insert this thing this narrative element into the story now everybody has to go along with it um because i my character has revealed the truth about something so i love that and <laughs> i am going to steal it for when i do my reality tv show TV game show thing because uh, the confessional is such an important part of that of that kind of uh, TV show. It's yeah. not so much for Great British Bake Off because Great British Bake Off is so cozy and so friendly. Um, but if I was doing something like America's Next Top Model, those confessionals <laughs> or The Bachelor, <laughs> um, which is one of my guilty pleasures, where it used to be, not anymore. I don't watch it anymore. Yeah. Incentivize uh, it. That's definitely the way. That's that's what I found used was like give give care give players a reason to that, that they they can gain something helpful or mitigate something difficult. Yeah. By by going into those, um, but that they also can't just constantly do that over and over <laughs> because otherwise they'll just you know they'll sidetrack everything. It. So I limited right. I limited the number of times you could do it, but. Um, yeah, it's 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 a fun experiment, and and for designers out there, like taking these little elements of TV shows or movies or video games or whatever, and finding an interesting way to kind of present them in a mechanical sense um, in a game, even if it's just a thought experiment, if it's just toying with the idea and putting it, you know, writing a paragraph or two down on paper and saying, well, this is how you could emulate this in a game, mm-hmm. it becomes good practice. Even mm-hmm. if you don't make that game or complete that game, um, uh, it can be fun. You can develop little me- mechanics that you might use later on down the road. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I literally did a, I did a, I'm one of a, a little one. It's like a two-page game 
that I, it's the, probably the one that I'm most proud of that's called Little Devil, Little Angel, which is literally built around the idea of everybody has a little devil on their shoulder and a little angel <laughs> on their shoulder. Whenever they need to make a decision, the angel and the devil give them advice. And the little and the devil, the, the devil and the angel are the people to their left and their right at the table. Uh, so cute. There's, there's, there's no dice for deciding whether you succeed or fail at something. It's all just you're telling the story, you're improving, you're telling. But every time there's a major decision for your character to make, you have to have a cutscene and have a discussion with your the angel and the devil, That's and then so and then fun. you have to do one of those two things. That is so fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can I can see people getting really evil with that at the table, <laughs> <laughs> or good, really angelic, maybe. Uh, yeah, now, now, uh, it's like right now, almost all the media I'm consuming is anime and I don't want to make another anime. I don't want to make an anime game as, as, uh, a, a white person. <laughs> I don't want to do that. There, there are plenty of, of those, but there, there are elements from anime that I like to watch that I could definitely include and incorporate in my games. I've been watching that and guys grocery games and that's like the number <laughs> the number one medium so how so how can you mash up some of those anime elements not the anime itself or what the story's about but like just things that you see in animes that could get mashed into a cooking competition show well i was i was thinking when when pam uh when they mentioned that uh in devil devil may cry with the white haired demon boys like that's <laughs> such an anime trope and yes. it's an anime trope. I feel like I could. Everyone likes the white-haired demon boy. <laughs> it's very. Yeah, I just if, watched all of Yasha, villain, for example. Why sexy, right? If villain, why sexy? That is the thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and you know, maybe maybe Guy Fieri could be a white-haired demon boy. <laughs> the host could be the host could be white-haired demon boy. Oh my show. gosh! <laughs> just imagining. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I think I, I. I don't. I don't know what elements from the anime I'd watch I would make into a game, but I can think of some from Guys Grocery Games with just the random nonsense that's thrown in because randomization is so good for games. Um, for me, at least, I like I like random elements to throw me off every once in a while. Sure. Um, I know not everyone likes that, but for me, I like when the dice tell me to do something. Uh, so, so you're, are we imagining a game that has a lot of, uh, a lot of random tables? Yeah. Well, like one of the games that you play in guys grocery games is you have to draw a random letter and then you can only use ingredients using that letter. Um, or you have to play a bowling game where you roll a melon <laughs> down an aisle and knock over two liter sodas oh, uh and that tells you what aisles you can shop it like there's so many random things that they do in this <laughs> game um that that you could kind of put into play <laughs> uh alex my my fiance uh tried making a game well it was just an adventure that we played that was based on blue adept i think it was and part of it involved him making us roll on tables to figure out what kind of competition we were going to compete in as players. So like, yeah, I don't know how to better describe that, but it would be things like random, like chance, 
or or strength or some other skill and then the uh, the x-axis would be another set of skills and whatever you rolled there became the competition i don't know if you made up the competitions on the fly or if you had them all planned out but something from a book i've never read <laughs> i've been doing something with a game that i'm working on right now for this is for nowhereville which is like a horror stephen king style horror game with the gm one of the things that you can do is create a story track which is basically just a series of checkboxes um and each checkbox represents a significant scene in the story but you don't assign what those scenes are it's just here's a bunch you're going to have a bunch of scenes and every time you begin a new scene uh like a big you're, every time you end a, a, an important scene you check check a box and when you and before the game you assign some of those check boxes as having um events and you know what that those events might be and they might be just a list of things that you can choose from they might be like you know a, a list of one two three four five six roll a die to determine what the event is and so then as the characters are going through, you know that inevitably they're going to get to some sort of weird thing that's going to happen that's going to interrupt the middle of what they're doing. It might fall at an opportune time to deal with it. It might fall at the absolute worst time to deal with it. But it's entirely random because it's a question you don't have any idea how many, like where their story, where they're going to go with the story. Cause, so you don't know how many scenes they're going to go through before they get to the, the event milestone. Um, but you know that it's coming. <laughs> um, so it builds a little bit of attention for you, and then when you, and then you can introduce it when it happens. Like you, you know, an NPC gets abducted, or somebody turns up dead or injured, or um, like a, a strange phenomena, like a strange meteorological event takes place that's part of the story. Um, or you know, NPCs show up, and they're going to take the take business into their own hands and put themselves in danger so now you've not only got to deal with the monster or whatever it is you're trying to deal with now you've got some idiot npcs that are going to go out and get themselves killed um, <laughs> if, if you don't find a way to to help them um and it's so it's like a random way to do it but um it's not strictly rolling a table well, we have gone 17 past the hour, so I think it's about, <laughs> it's probably about time to start wrapping up before we continue talking about all of our, our fave media. Uh, <laughs> but this has been a lot of fun. Thank you again, Pam, for rejoining us. Uh, <laughs> oh, no problem. Pam, <laughs> Thank you. Pam, plug your pluggables for us. Oh, uh, so I am the Dovetailer Everywhere, so uh, that's on Twitter, also on even on Discord, if I remember correctly, then I have an itch account. I also have a card that's a C A R R D dot C O. So the dovetailer dot card dot com uh, dot co rather. Uh, you can find all of my games there, and I am trying very hard to crawl back to create some kind of social media presence again. But if you really need me, reach out and DM me, and all my details are also on my websites. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and at Joska. I tweet about different things. Or you can go to wannabegames.com. Uh, you can find me at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter, and you can go to nerdburgergames.com. Uh, I think that's about it. Supersized episode, everybody. Yeah. Um, and thank you again, Pam, for... For, for, the, for the record, I, I saved this for the end, so maybe people won't listen to it. Um, it was my fault. Um, that we didn't have the recording properly for last time around. Um, I have fixed it this time. Everything's good. I see little bars going up and down. Everybody's talking and the voices are being recorded. <laughs> so um, I figured out how to use a, a computer recording equipment in 2021. Yay me. 
Um, <laughs> so thank you, everybody. Um, yeah. And thank you for listening. We'll see you again in two weeks. Woo-hoo.